Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Dan Katz and Stephen Moran of Amber Wave Partners. Dan and Stephen have very interesting backgrounds. Stephen contributed to implementing the CARES Act programs. Dan was a member of the National Security Loan Program Credit Committee, as well as the Airline Loan Program Credit Committee. Together, those committees oversaw more than $20 billion of emergency loans. They joined me to talk about their firm, Amber Wave Partners, and their concept of JSG investing. That stands for Job Security and Growth Investing. I enjoyed this conversation very much and believe you will as well. I uh, think that you should pump some U.S. national anthem music for this one. But all kidding aside, I really did enjoy this very much and think that they have some unique things to say. So I appreciate them coming on the show. This episode is sponsored by Bastiat Partners, a boutique investment bank. Bastiat's founder and managing member is Nader Afshar, a fan of the pod. When he reached out to me, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be sponsored by an investment bank that I'd never heard of. A few conversations and a couple due diligence calls later, and I'm happy to be associated with Bastiat Partners. Nader is described as a connector, high integrity, a low-key version of Byron Trot, and a rare investment banker that focuses on the alignment of interests and incentives. So I appreciate him allowing me to do some due diligence on him and his firm, and I appreciate Bastiat's support. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. All right, everyone. Uh, thrilled to be joined by Dan Katz and Steve Myron today from Amber Wave. Guys, do you want to, I don't know who wants to start, but rather than me do the intro, because I don't want to mess it up, do you want to... Uh, Tell your firm name and your backgrounds and how you came to your investment philosophy. I mean, I know that that's kind of a lot, but let's kind of keep that, you know, as tight as possible. And then we'll start the conversation because I, I find what you guys do very interesting. Great. So uh, thanks for, so much for having us. We're, we're super excited to be here. You know, we, the, the three of us, the co-founders of Amberwave Partners really met at the Treasury Department in 2020, uh, when we all found ourselves together at the Treasury to help implement uh, the fiscal policies that really shored up the economy and prevented a depression and got the you know sort of economy roaring back to life during the COVID pandemic, you know it was it was a honor of a lifetime to be able to help out like that, and we were super proud of the work that we did. And when we came out of Treasury, uh, we thought, you know, sort of we'd all been in finance for years before that. I was a portfolio manager at a hedge fund. Dan was a banker at Goldman. Our, our third partner, Tom, was in private equity uh, for many years. And we thought rather than going back to what we were doing before, hey, wouldn't it be fun to do something totally new and totally exciting, very different? And we looked around at the financial universe, noticed that one of the biggest changes in the last 10 years was the rise of impact investing, particularly ESG investing, which stands for environmental, social, and governance-based investing, uh, and that this was massively popular and that there was enormous demand for products like this. Uh, we looked around at the, the range of products that are out there and lots of folks doing ESG stuff, but many of them are doing stuff that's very similar to each other. And we thought, you know, it's really great that people are doing impact investing. We don't see the values that we think are the most important values out there represented. And so we want to try and do something new. And so we came up with what we call JSG investing. 
which stands for Jobs, Security, and Growth. And so what we do is we try and direct capital to companies that are having, in our opinion, the most positive impacts on the country by creating jobs so that uh, you know, sort of people can have thriving uh, lives and careers and communities all across the country, contributing to security broadly construed that includes supply chain security, cybersecurity, information security, national security, all those things, and contribute to economic growth because economic growth is really how everybody can benefit and uh, lift up into prosperity into the future and create the basis for you know broad-based, broad-based prosperity and flourishing of a country as a whole. And so that's what we decided was super important to us. And we want to create an entirely new way of impact investing. And that's what we've set about to do. Dan, do you have anything to add? So no is fine. Yeah. Now, the one thing I, I would add, you know, just to slightly elaborate on Steve's great points, is that really when we think about the DNA of our firm, uh, we're really trying to, you know, do two things, uh, right? So one is to put at the heart of of our firm some of the judgments around public policy that we have experience implementing as economic officials in government, and that we know work and lead to you know better outcomes in in American communities. But just as importantly, we're trying to instill within the job security and growth, the JSG investing style, the importance of returns for investors. We don't think you have to choose between doing well and uh, and making an impact in your community. You know, we think there's very substantial evidence actually that shows that the kinds of factors we're looking for in companies will also tend to be associated with companies that outperform over time, right? So companies that have healthy labor practices tend to outperform in our view because they're able to have more productive workforces, they're able to attract more talent, they're able to grow and scale more quickly. You know, companies that have supply chains that are more US centric, right? That are rebuilding their manufacturing and, and sourcing here are going to be less exposed to geopolitical shocks, whether that's from a pandemic or whether that's from Russian invasion of of, uh, of Ukraine or any other neighbor. And, and so we actually think that this, this strategy is both vital to returns and to impact. So when, you, when you're analyzing uh, the JSG characteristics, is it fair to say that it's from a U.S.-centric lens? Or, or is it, you know, like, does it include Canada? Is it, is it just U.S.-centric? Absolutely. It's just US centric. In fact, the letters USA are, are in the name of the, the ticker of our ETF, which is IUSA, right? And we're focused on the impact on uh, American communities, right? We want to create jobs in communities all across the country and enforce the security of, of folks all across this country. And, uh, you know, we think that people in Canada should be pursuing similar, you know, similar products and people in, in Europe should be pursuing similar products, right? But, you know, the three of us are Americans and uh, we want to do, you know, sort of try and help uh, people all across the country. Yeah. One, one thing I'd add is, you know, on the kind of international dimension, I mean, Steve's, Steve's exactly right that we're focused on investing in U.S. companies, rewarding companies for investing back in the U.S., but when we evaluate, for example, the uh, you know the impact of a company on U.S. security and our, the security of our supply chains, we do look at you know different sources of of, of uh, you know foreign feedstocks uh, differently, right? So a company that sources its its uh, inputs from Canada or from Mexico is going to be is going to score a little bit higher than a company that sources its inputs from Russia or from or from China or from Southeast Asia, because those supply chains are much more vulnerable to disruption. So we do distinguish, you know, amongst the the markets internationally, 
and our scoring process, but it's all focused on impact here in the U.S. That makes sense to me, especially given what's going on in the world right now. You know, one thing that I I was hoping that uh, you could help me understand is what, if you don't mind talking about current events a little bit, what exactly goes on when we sanction a country like we did to Russia? And how does that, like, what are, part one of the question is, what's the mechanism to do it? And part two is like, I, I don't know how to contextualize what we've done to Russia relative to what we've done to people or, or countries historically. How big of a deal is this? It may be a silly question, but it's the one I have. It's certainly not a silly question because it's fundamental to understanding what's been happening in markets over the last few weeks. So, you know, maybe I think it's just helpful for a, a lot of folks out there to, to step back to the basics and, and really look at, you know, what a sanction is and what the transmission mechanisms are, right? So uh, sanctions are a tool that governments can use when they want to achieve an objective. The primary objective is putting pressure on an adversary somehow, right? So when you read about blockades in history, right, naval blockades in Greece in the, in the you know, fourth century BC, those are a form of sanction. You know, now we have much more sophisticated tools uh, that operate through highly complex transmission mechanisms in the financial sector, but it's still the fun fundamentally the same idea, right? You're trying to make it difficult for an adversary to do business in order to achieve a, a change in their behavior. So when we, you know, the U.S. or, or any international jurisdiction, when we announce a sanction, what that means is that you know the US or, or any other jurisdiction has actually changed their law to prohibit their people who are subject to their jurisdiction from doing certain kinds of activity with the foreign government, right? Be, so because we have a highly interconnected, highly developed financial system now, the tool has moved from you know a naval blockade uh, to a financial blockade of types. So the, the thing that's often forgotten in that development from naval blockades to financial blockades is that now actually the private sector is the mechanism through which economic pressure is delivered because it's ultimately the private sector mm -hmm. that implements sanctions. So, you know, over the last three weeks, uh, as we've seen sanctions ratchet up, and, I, and I'm happy to cover the uh, the impacts, really the or is the impacts and contextualize, um, you know, just how significant it is. Really, what we've seen is that the private sector has had a hard time getting their head around, you know, what is prohibited now, what may be prohibited in the future, what may be allowed but present reputational risk, and that's why we've seen so much uncertainty, you know, in things like Russian Russian oil uh, sales that are explicitly carved out of the sanctions, right? That governments explicitly want to allow. You've still seen private market participants step away from doing that kind of business because they're worried about reputational risk, and they're worried that governments are going to turn around in the future and change things. So, you know, really, the the, the sanctions mechanism is immensely complicated and involves this dance between governments and the private sector, which is actually not that much different how you know many other markets operate. And so, it's you know, it's it's fascinating to watch. You know this this market based cooperation mechanism uh, generate financial impacts on on adversaries that sometimes are exactly what governments wanted to achieve, and other times are different. Yeah, 
I, you know, it's, it's been interesting from my perspective or whatever. And I, this is like way outside of what I normally pay attention to, but to see a com a company like BP just say, okay, we're going to divest of our stake. Right. And, and to come out and pre-announce that and not, I mean, if you say something like that, presumably you're selling to a buyer that knows that you're a forced seller. It's as if the economics of getting rid of it almost didn't even matter. But I presume the internal conversation is, well, the the political goodwill that we will accumulate by by selling this exceeds, you know, whatever cost we're going to write it down. So it's so it's been a wild thing for me to watch. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a great point, right? I mean, that's a very strange dynamic that gets created. I mean, just to push it a little bit further, think about if BP or some other Western firm is going to uh, you know divest themselves of of their interest in certain Russian energy products, and the most likely seller is just to hand the shares back to to the Russian firm, which is actually a massive windfall for the company, right? Yeah, in a perverse <laughs> way, it, yeah. it puts wealth back in your quote unquote enemy's pocket, Exa right? Exactly, right? And look, we've we have seen governments in the West try to be thoughtful about the way that they're encouraging divestments. Divestment. So built into you know, some of the orders to, to divest and, and sanctions-related uh, prohibitions are prohibitions on selling of sanctioned assets to uh, sanctioned parties, right? So you know, selling back to the, the, the target because you don't want to create windfalls. But you know, this is a highly... I mean, the Russian... Just to back up, you asked a little bit about where to where this kind of fits into the overall scale of sanctions and, and how significant are the actions that's take that are taken. The actions that were taken themselves, like the the the, the legal sanctions that were taken, are not unprecedented. The, these kind of measures have been taken against other jurisdictions, other countries, and actually more aggressive measures have been taken. What is completely unprecedented is how interconnected the target is to the global financial system, right? The, the Central Bank of Russia had over $600 billion USD equivalent uh, in, uh, in reserves prior to, uh, prior to the, the freeze on, on Russian Central Bank reserves that was announced about two and a half weeks ago. The entire Iranian economy, which is probably the other most sanctioned, uh, which is probably represents the, you know, the height of, of aggressiveness of sanctions, was only $550 billion when when Treasury started moving very, very aggressively against the Iranian economy, the Iranian central bank, the Iranian oil sales in 2012. So the scale is just vastly, vastly different, right? Russia is vastly more interconnected into the global financial system, which is precisely why when you roll out these sanctions, you're going to encounter, you know, in like just enormous amount of permutations of various financial structures. And, and it's very difficult to... Uh, to understand exactly how the sanctions will fit in in all uh, in all cases, which is why you end up with some of these paradoxes, like the like the one that uh, you pointed out, where you may end up, if you're not careful, delivering a windfall to the person that you're trying to generate pressure on. And these, you know, these these worries, these wonders, sort of spread throughout the entire financial system as well, as folks aren't sure who's going to be stuck with uh, obligations that aren't money good. Right. And so you do see, you know, some signs of funding stress poke up here and there in financial markets as people are unsure about their counterparties making short term payments. Right. That's the type of thing that happened in 2008 during the financial crisis. I mean, there's a hundred and seventy billion dollars of foreign exposure to Russian to Russian assets, equ equities and, and bonds. Right. 
you can't just you know excise that from the global financial system with zero consequences. So everyone's trying to figure out exactly what those consequences are. And so far, it seems like it's not too bad. But you are seeing, you know, like a little bit of pressure here or there. Yeah, I think where you're also seeing pressure is in the commodity markets. And it's very hard for me to understand how fungible commodities are when the West is sort of blocking Russia from doing anything. I mean, I'm not being specific or precise, but this is how I think about it. You know, how many of those commodities just go to China and India? How many, you know, like in theory, you could just move something to a different jurisdiction and then the aggregate supply doesn't increase but or decrease. But it seems as though the the logistics and the supply chains are completely messed up from a commodity standpoint, and they already were pretty tight as it was. So this is creating quite a confounding series of events. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, commodity prices are really the one way that Putin has to strike back, right? You know, we can control the banking system in ways that hurt him, right? In ways that Dan was describing a, a couple minutes ago. Driving commodity prices higher are his way to, to strike back, to put pressure on Western governments. And that's his only real, you know, his only real meaningful tool. Yeah. And and just to give you kind of our, our house view on what you've seen in the commodity markets over the last couple of weeks, it's really been a, a, a complex story, right? So immediately following the invasion, you saw a huge run up in, in, in a variety of markets. Some, you know, were technical driven. Obviously, there's been a lot of attention on, you know, the nickel market, for for example, which is kind of a one-off, uh, you know, uh, esoteric kind of issue uh, driven by a short squeeze. But and the oil market's a pretty deep and liquid market, and there may be some some technical factors driving the the price rise we saw. But primarily, it was a worry about about the status of future supply. Over the last week, you've seen a dramatic reduction in oil prices, which to us is is kind of driven by two things. One, you know, certainly it's going to be driven by uh, questions about Chinese demand for the next year and extending out further as a result of, you know, some of the real very serious questions that are uh, that are getting asked about the you know how sustainable their zero COVID policy is going to be, particularly as we see. Infections on the rise, both in the mainland and certainly in, in Hong Kong, which has been you know very very severely impacted. And if you remove a you know a large chunk of Chinese demand for the market, even if it's difficult for the Russia to supply the market, well maybe the market's not so tight after all. But the other you know very strange phenomenon is that you know Western governments, as I mentioned earlier, have been very explicit that the sanctions do not apply to oil. Right, the U.S. is kind of stands alone in having announced a a ban on U.S. oil imports. But the U.S. very specifically still allows U.S. financial institutions to finance foreign purchases of Russian mm. oil products. Uh, so governments have not tried to impose an embargo on Russian oil and keep Russian oil off the market. But what you've seen is that the market itself has said, you know what, there's a lot of reputational risk to be seen you know, funding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. By the way, governments may change their mind in the future. You saw this a little bit with the with the U.S. oil ban, right? The the what essentially happened is that the Biden administration uh, exempted the purchase of of uh, U.S. purchases of Russian oil and refined products, and then Congress moved to act, right? Uh, and the market actually was right about this. The market anticipated that Congress was going to act, and so they had already stopped purchases prior to prior to the action being announced. 
Uh, and so the real question for the oil markets, we think, is going to be how long this self-sanctioning mechanism can last. Because the longer it lasts, the more difficult it's going to be to maintain, right? For now, you know, there's some question about, about demand in certain markets, particularly China. There are inventories, even though they were fairly low coming into this crisis, right? So there is a little bit of give in the market. But if this persists much longer and there's no change in, in Russia's aggression against the Ukraine, you know, we're going to get into a, a situation where if the self-sanctioning persists, you're going to see the market tighten even further, likely going to see prices go up. And then there are only two options. One, you can bring more supply to the market, which can't happen quickly. Uh, or two, you're going to need to ration and reduce demand. And all this really, for us, underlines the importance of why it's important to pay attention to your supply chain exposure and why we make such a, you know, why, why we put so much effort into looking at the supply chains of the companies we invest in. Because when something like this happens, you know, one of the best performers in our portfolio since the Russian invasion began has been a company called uh, Mosaic, right? And they're a fertilizer producer, and they source all of their inputs in North America, and they own or control all their subsidiaries, right? Russia's one of the top you know, sort of producer of of inputs into fertilizer, which of course is absolutely essential to keeping the world fed, right? So it's super important to be aware of the supply chain exposures you have, because obviously Russia doesn't invade the Ukraine every day, but it seems like, you know, every year there's several geopolitical volatility events where something happens to disrupt supply chains. And it's a significant driver of that performance. And it, it has been a significant driver of, that, you know, the Russia the Russian invasion has been a significant driver outperformance for our fund. Yeah, well, especially, uh, I mean, Mosaic is what, potash primarily or something, and that has just yep. ripped. So uh, I yep. would imagine that's a nice position to have. You know, I, I think about, so is like CF Industries something you guys own too? Yep. Yeah. So that's interesting. So you're looking at what are like base materials that supply I, I in at in these two examples i think you're looking at like what are base materials that support our food infrastructure and make america sort of self-sustaining potentially in yep. this area right exactly so when we're looking at materials companies we're looking at you know sort of food food companies whether it's in a consumer sector or in a material sector right or industrials no matter what it is we're looking at where their inputs coming from Right? Are they reliant on uh, on 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 Russia for their nitrogen? Right? Or are they actually you know sort of sourcing that nitrogen in the U.S. and Canada? Right? Because obviously you know there's a big difference between the two of them in terms of geopolitical resilience. Hmm. Yeah, and and just to maybe give you a bit more context of of the interplay between this you know job security and growth, these JSG factors, and our investing strategy. You know, for us, JSG is really akin to you know, ESG, right? It's an investment philosophy, but you can have different strategies within that philosophy uh, that are designed to achieve different outcomes. So uh, in our in our existing fund, the IUSA ETF, uh, the strategy there is to provide a product that broadly uh, represents the market in the sense that it has the same or similar sector weightings that the S&P 500 or any broad market measure is going to have but within sectors to pick the top performers on job security and growth as a way to isolate for job security and growth outperformance rather than you know rather than being overexposed to energy or materials or any other particular sector so 
you know, when we think about IUSA, uh, really what we're trying to engineer for is JSG Alpha. And that's what we've seen in the context of, of the, the geopolitical uncertainty since we launched the fund uh, in late January. We've seen about 200 basis points of, of alpha generated, and we're recording this on March 17th. And, uh, and so that, that's about what we'd expect in terms of the JSG alpha, right? But obviously, if we owned 100% energy, we would be you know, way, way overperforming that. But that's not the function of, of the IUSA product. Okay, so to just repeat what you said to me back to you, you're trying not to pivot too much from sector weightings, but you're trying to identify the strongest U.S.-focused JSG companies within each sector. Yeah, that's that's for the IUSA ETF. We may have subsequent okay. products and other strategies in the future that will maybe look like a sector-focused funds where you choose only the best you know, job security and growth performers within within a sector. But for IUSA, we're really trying to provide a diversified, you know, large cap replacement that's focused on JSG Alpha. Within the jobs portion of this, do you distinguish between, you know, I, a company that creates a thousand jobs, but they're not particularly high skilled versus a company that maybe does 20 jobs, but they are high skilled? And how do you weight sort of those factors? Yeah, absolutely. That that is that is hundred percent stuff that we look at. And ideally, what we want to see is we want to see job creation across the skill spectrum, right? Obviously, all else equal, high paying jobs are better than low paying jobs, right? But we also want to make sure that there are opportunities for entry level employees, right? For you know, for people to create an American dream straight out of high school, straight out of college, right? And then opportunities for training and advancement along the career ladder, right? We want to see people stay in firms for long periods of time and get promoted internally and and make careers and lives for themselves and their families, right? We don't want to see churn of entry level workers where you're just hiring and firing, you know, sort of unskilled labor without ever giving them skills. Right. So we look at all those things and there's no, you know, formal waiting mechanism, you know, sort of thinking, you know, one high paying job is worth X low paying jobs. Right. Because what we're looking at is, is a more holistic approach to the company's uh, treatment of its workers and provision of, of employment opportunities for everyone. The perspective that, that we're coming at when we look at, at the job score is really the perspective of, of the holistic health of the labor market. Right. I mean, that's certainly what we always tried to focus on during our, our, our government service and other contributions to public policy is making sure that there's broad-based prosperity, right? Because you don't want to see gains accruing just to one particular social group, uh, you know, one particular geographic area on the coast, right? What you really want to see is, is gains per, uh, across the sector and particularly for those who need the most help. And so when we look at companies on, on the jobs factor, as, as Steve said, you know, we're really looking for a diverse array of positions being created. Uh, and in particular, in areas that may be economically left behind, or for populations that uh, have had you know relatively less economic uh, opportunities. So you know, big bonus points. So big bonus points if you're creating jobs, you know, in rural communities for uh, for folks with just a high school degree, right? Same thing with respect to the inner cities. So a job like that is going to be um, is is probably going to mean more in our scoring than just another software engineer in Silicon Valley or New York. Yeah, I like that because I, I think maybe my tone may have, um, I'm not sure that it conveyed what I was uh, thinking in my head. I actually think right now with all the inflation, I would probably 
overweight raises to the lower income segment of the population and weight higher some of the more creation of lower paying jobs than I would necessarily taking care of those that have sort of uh, been winning for lack of a better term for a long time. That's just my bias right now. Absolutely. I mean, you, when you think about who needs help, right, you know, it's 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 exactly those folks that you're describing. I mean, when when I think about what would what would I think of as a successful product, right? Look, ESG is a tens of trillions of dollar industry, right? Ecosystem. We'd love JSG to get to a size like that where it can have impact, right? And for this to be a successful product and to scale to the point where you can have that type of impact, I would love for JSG to lower the cost of capital for companies creating jobs in the US as opposed to taking your capital and shipping it abroad and creating jobs in you know China or Malaysia or Canada or Mexico or anywhere else, right? And Think about the, you know, sort of the, the uh, you know, archetypal factory town where the factory shut down and now the, you know, the main source of economic life in the in the community is is gone for decades, right? It would be so wonderful to be able to lower the cost of capital for creating jobs so that more companies will revive those factory towns and invest in, invest in communities that don't have that economic lifeblood and where, frankly, it is now very cheap to produce and very cheap to do stuff. Yeah. Right. That's what that's what the long term goal is going to be. You know where I think uh, JSG and ESG could probably marry is in the idea of providing child care. And I, I was at a charity event last night and somebody said, you know, how do you help? How do you help somebody that a family that's struggling? And I that, that right now, that's my answer, just because I think it's got to be so, so difficult to uh, raise a child and and be able to have two people have a job. So I don't know. It's absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, I think there's actually a significant amount of overlap between JSG and ESG. You know, we don't we don't call ourselves an ESG fund, but there's certainly ESG folks who love our product and who love what we do. And childcare is an important part of how you're treating your workers. Right. Yeah. And it's an important part of your workers being able to start their own families and live the American dream. Right. hundred percent. That is something that we care about. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, my my opinion on ESG is that it's just been used for marketing. But I, I think that um, w- when done right, I, I bet that there is a ton of overlap. I, I sometimes wonder if some if ESG, and I don't know this, but like, does ESG exclude someone like Northrop Grumman? And if so, do they actually understand what makes America secure? I would argue probably not if they're making those kind of exclusions, but... It's my own opinion. You guys don't need to comment or feel free either way. I, actually, I, would, I don't want to put you in a weird spot. I would like to comment. Um, and, and actually, I'd like to, to push back a bit on your point that, you know, ESG has really just been for marketing purposes. You know, feel free. If, if ESG really w- was just a marketing spin and had no impact, then you would find it much easier for shale companies to attract financing right now. But the reality is that you know the fossil fuel industry has been hugely impacted in terms of their access to capital as a result of, of you know the proliferation of, of ESG through the public markets and even the private markets now, right? I mean, you've seen a number of very very large asset managers make pledges that they're not going to invest in fossil fuels as part of you know their flagship buyout funds, and so ESG, from my perspective, actually has had a big impact on the market. Now, I think there is a marketing issue, which is that. You know, I think I think ESG sometimes overpromises, right? 
impact investing, you know, incorporating your judgments into allocation decisions is never going to solve all of the world's problems, right? Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, the some folks in the ESG ecosystem gotten a little bit ahead of their skis and implied that this is a solution to climate change, you know, to solving all the world's problems. But it's it's not, and it never will be. What it can be is make a difference at the margin. And if the, you know, if the impact is better than the counterfactual, if you didn't have ESG, then, you know, it is meaning, making a meaningful contribution. It's just important to line up the marketing with the, the actual impact. Yeah, I, I don't actually disagree that it's had an impact. Uh, I'm just not sure that I necessarily agree with some of the externalities, but, you know, whatever. And for sure, for sure, there are times when ESG doesn't doesn't deliver on its promises to investors and investor portfolios, right? I mean, you've seen that this year as all these ESG portfolios that have excluded sectors like uh, energy, like uh, defense, right, have really, really lagged, you know, the rest of the market in in some in some senses and, and times because they haven't had exposure to some of the hottest sectors, right? That's failing their investors, right? And that's you know, significant part of the reason why when we created IUSA, we decided that we weren't going to play with sector weights, right? Uh, because we didn't want to run the risk that, you know, we'd sort of deliver significant underperformance to our investors by ignoring part of the by ignoring part of the uh, part, you know, parts of the economy. I mean, think about, you know, like the IT sector, right? The IT sector, you know, it's hard to find, you know, sort of mega capped software companies that you know, sort of score fabulously on JSG criteria, right? Obviously, you can't cut out exposure to mega cap IT sector. Sorry, mega mega cap software. Do you mind ex- just why do that? Yeah. Why do they score poorly? I don't. I don't mean to cut you off, but I know why you can't keep them out. You've d- d- taking a ton of performance out of the out of the index. But why do they score poorly? Well, not necessarily taking performance out, but sort of you know because there are times when they underperform, like they have in the last few days, right? But you know, op- leaving yourself vulnerable to significant performance divergences, which is just what we think our investors wouldn't want in our first product, right? In terms of why we why we leave them out, I mean, there's, you know, it would be job numbers, right? It would be, secu- it would be security numbers. And when you're looking in the IT sector and you're thinking about, okay, I care about security, well, there are companies that focused explicitly on security, companies like, uh, you know, Motorola. Motorola, you know, sort of their, uh, their security uh, firm, right, is in the S&P 500 in, in, in security, right? A company like, uh, and I guess this is you know communication services, not not IT, but like a company like you know like Facebook, right? Meta, like it's really hard to make an argument that that contributes to you know to security in any real sense, whether it's supply chain security, national security, you know sort of commu- you know security of communities, right? And so it's really tough to make an argument that a company like that sort of should have a should have a strong JSG uh, representation, hmm. right? So it's. Because you're unable to give high scores to these companies as a whole, but you still have to include some representation, right? You wind up taking, you know, you wind up taking the best of the sector, and that sort of, you know, leads to, you know, IUSA essentially having a beta of of just about one, right, to the S and P five hundred, like one point zero zero five, I think, last time I looked. You know, which means that all the outperformance is just pure alpha, uh, which of course you would expect in a in a products that match the sector exposures of the S&P 500 almost exactly. But back to, you know, ESG, I mean, yes, there have been significant times when ESG has not lived up to its promises on performance. And that, you know, sort of may to an extent be be a marketing effect. And we've also seen a significant, you know, greenwashing concern, 
right? There was the the Deutsche Bank scandal earlier this year, right? Where, or was it late last year, in which, um, you know, it turned out that, uh, you know, they were advertising, they were taking all these ESG actions, and it turned out that they weren't. They were just sort of saying ESG and climate uh, everywhere in their literature, but not actually putting their money where their mouth is, right? So, you know, there's concerns about, concerns about greenwashing and ESG in terms of are these guys actually doing what they say they're doing? And, you know, we think JSG really provides a really provides a solution to that. You know, at the end of the day, what greenwashing is about, concerns over greenwashing is about are concerns about impact measurability, right? They're about does the product that I'm, you know, does the product that I'm buying or that I'm investing in really tie back at the end of the day to really moving the needle on any of the ESG issues that I really care about? Is it really moving the needle on climate change? Did climate change alter its course whatsoever because I bought an ESG product or was climate change totally, you know, totally uh, unaffected by my ESG actions? You know, that's a significant question, right? With JSG, you don't have that impact measurability problem because we're counting the jobs that you create, right? We're counting the jobs that are created in companies in the portfolio. And every time there's a news release about job creation or job destruction, you know, we're reading it. We're incorporating it into our scorings. Every time a company is releasing data on what it's doing with its employees, we're reading that. We're incorporating that into our scorings. And so the fact that people have jobs now that didn't have jobs last week or last year or two years ago, right, that's, you know, we feel a concrete improvement in people's lives in a way that you don't really have with the impact measurability, uh, you know, sort of in, in, in problems that that people have in the GS in the ESG space. Do you mind defining greenwashing just so we all are on the same page? Sure, I can I can take that. Yeah. So greenwashing is, you know, a, a real term of art that you see thrown about in the ESG space. And just to kind of, you know, break it down at, at a fundamental level, what it means is, is that it means when someone is advertising a product as green, right? Or as, as you know, having some kind of environmental impact, but there's really no way to substantiate that, that the company, that, that the fund or the product is actually having an environmental impact. So, you know, you see this a lot in like certain ESG indexes that market themselves as green or as ESG or as, you know, consistent with the Paris uh, Accords. But that then hold, you know, a whole host of, of fossil fuel firms in, in the index, and it's a it's a phenomenon that you see in the ESG space from from time to time. You know, can we also just return quickly to a point, Bill, that you raised that I thought was really interesting was this issue of the externalities associated with ESG, and you know what the what the impact of those externalities is. You know, when we like take a step back and we looked at the impact investing market. You know what you see is that ESG is really dominant, and ESG is primarily driven by you know a relatively narrow set of issues that are really oriented around the environment more than anything else. And so, because ESG has become kind of a catch-all for all impact, right, or all things investors should care about that aren't traditional financial metrics, in our view, what you see is you know an imbalance on you know a bunch of other real critical impacts that investors should be thinking about, right, and so. If only if all investors are focused on is the environment, you're going to create externalities when you say, you know, uh, have Exxon divest from certain of its fossil fuel uh, interests. That may have a climate impact, but what about the jobs that are left behind, right? What about the American communities that depended upon uh, some of these traditional uh, traditional industries, right? What does it do for U.S. energy security and our geopolitical vulnerability? To Russian uh, economic coercion, right? What does that mean for uh, the future path of inflation and how American consumers are going to be able to 
uh, you know, feed their families and continue to maintain standard of livings in the face of what what have been declining real wages as a result of the inflation problem we have, right? And so, really, what we're just trying to do is to add some additional perspective into the market to exist alongside of ESG, right? That people should consider alongside environmental, social, and governments decisions in order to create more optimal outcomes for American communities rather than just focusing myopically on ESG. With, uh, within the growth context, I'm going to ask a broad question, and I, I hope it's okay. I don't, I don't want to put you guys in tough spots, but like I'm thinking about a company that is, that is investing a lot. So let's take Amazon, for example, right? Definitively not playing a margin game. Growing, always hiring, always reinvesting. Arguably trades at like a valuation that appears optically high relative to current free cash flow, right? Because there's so much investment versus, you know, a company that's maybe cheaper but isn't growing as much. How do you make those trade-offs in a financial product? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. And and bottom line is that Amazon is in our portfolio. Amazon does make the cut on JSG criteria. Again, as we said before, we're taking the top 20% of scorers in each sector, and Amazon scores quite highly on jobs, right? They score quite highly on their supply chain management, right? That, you know, and, and their, their contribution to supply chain management and AWS creating an environment in which other companies can create website, pro, you know, website presences and 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 really create digital economy right so amazon does make the cut uh in a way that you know sort of a company like facebook like we were saying before wouldn't even though it's another of these tech mega caps right and you know the one area sorry one of the significant areas and and you raised the g factor economic growth right that amazon gets dinged on is its treatment of uh you know it's it's somewhat you know, anti-competitive practices that it has, right? When it sort of under, you know, tries to uh, squeeze small business, right? On the one hand, it creates a platform for small businesses to exist and sell and resell goods that those small businesses would not necessarily have access to without Amazon. Although, you know, in a sense, there are other platforms that do that too, right? But maybe not as big. But at the same time, Amazon does squeeze those small businesses, right? And it does engage in, it does engage in 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 some anti-competitive practices here and there in the way that it does business. And so it gets dinged on those things. Right. But by and large, Amazon has just been, you know, flying colors when it comes to jobs. Yeah, well, it got us all through the pandemic, too. So shout out to them. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, how um how quantitative are some of these factors versus qualitative? Like there's such a hard decision, I would think, you know, with some of the nuance. So it really depends on on the individual factor in question, right? And you can actually go to go to our website, amberwavepartners.com or the fund website, jsgfunds.com. And you can see right there, you know, in our perspectives for IUSA and also in our website, the the specific rubric we use when applying the job score, the security score, and the growth score. And each of them is a multifactorial analysis. That's designed to provide a really a holistic picture of of a company's contribution to U.S. job security and growth. And some of the factors are very quanti- quantitative. For example, in the jobs factor, one of the things we look at is the the uh, the percentage of job growth for a country, both international or sorry, for a company, both internationally and in the U.S. over a long period of time. Uh, right. So that's that's quantitative in nature. But other factors like you know 
the impact of those jobs in the overall labor market draw on a mix of quantitative and qualitative factors, right? So one thing that informs our decision is, you know, relative growth, uh, relative unemployment rates across the U.S., right? So where are jobs needed? Relative growth in real, in real wages, depending on, on community in the U.S. and across uh, different segments of society. And that informs, you know, we kind of take that quantitative picture and try to map on the company's labor practices into that to come up with a judgment about how critical those uh, the jobs that company is creating is to the overall labor market. And so it's very varied between quantitative and, and qualitative analysis, but we draw upon both in order to provide what we think is a holistic perspective of a company's contribution on job security or growth. And another thing that's quite quantitative in what we do is looking at, you know, one of the most important things that we that we look at is this ratio of revenues in the U.S. to employment in the U.S., Right. And that really gives you, uh, you know, a a sense of whether the whether the company is really, you know, sort of creating opportunity in the U.S. for people to have good lives. Right. And so if all of your revenue are in the U.S., but you really don't have any workers here, obviously, if every firm did that, you wouldn't be able to afford anything ever again. And the economy would just collapse. Mm -hmm. Right. So that that's going to lead to a lower score. Right. If you have a ton of employees in the U.S., but you're actually an export powerhouse. That's great. You're creating you're creating jobs, right? You you know that that's wonderful. We like to see that, right? And so we we can look at things like that to sort of get a quantitative sense, but for the more qualitative things, you know, it's really a relative sense against the other guys in the sector, right? Because like we said before, we're taking the top companies in every sector, the top 20% of scorers in every sector. And so the absolute score in a sense isn't really that relevant. It's just about whether you made the cutoff into the portfolio or not. And so you're looking at these companies relative to each other and sort of just trying to give them a ranking, right? And so the ranking is ultimately, you know, the really important thing. And the actual, you know, the absolute score itself is, is, is less important. How do, uh, do balance sheets factor into any of this? I, I mean, I wouldn't think that they necessarily directly do, but I'm just thinking like, a lower leverage profile is arguably more secure because it's more resilient than um, than a higher leverage profile. But I don't know if that actually trickles all the way down to what you're doing or not. Yeah, what what I'd say is it's it's tangentially related, but it's not. You know, capital structure is not necessarily the the driver of our analysis. So, if, for example, a firm has you know, a high debt load that's going to that's going to uh, make it difficult for them to grow moving forward uh, because most of their free cash flow will need to be dedicated towards servicing debt. It's going to be difficult for them to score highly on some of our other metrics. Yeah. So what I'd say is there's an indirect effect, but it's not an explicit criteria. And, you know, the other thing I'd say is that for the the firms that that we're looking at, at least in IUSA, they're all S&P 500 constituents. So, you know, you tend to see relatively conservatively managed balance sheets you know, if we were focused on on the high yield market, uh, maybe we would uh, more explicitly incorporate it into our decision making. I was just thinking that like a a moderate leverage profile probably there's probably more job security at that firm uh, is kind of where my head was going, but I can understand why it's not directly related. No, I think that's a really interesting right. product. And, and look, it have. also depends highly based on industry, right? So, you know, big part of our portfolio because we're we're trying to match the broad the broad uh, the broad the broad market is uh, financials, right? And so, obviously, you need to think about leverage very differently in that context. 
Yeah. Yeah. Something that uh, I think, so what's your stance on energy is maybe a better way to ask the question. Where, where does U.S. shale, you know, sort of factor in from a JSG standpoint? Yeah. So from, from a JSG perspective, you know, we're really fond of all of the above energy strategies, right? We're supportive of renewables. We think they're important technologies that are going to, uh, you know, help the environment and, and power the, the global economy and the U.S. economy in particular over time. But there has to be a place in the overall energy mix for baseload power. And that's, and, and just to, to step back, what baseload power is, is power that's available at any time, right? Because the sun's not always shining and the wind's not always blowing. And that's got to be provided by uh, fossil fuels or by nuclear. Uh, so baseload uh, sources of power are things that we try to look for when we identify you know, firms in the energy sector, firms in the utility sector that are more JSG friendly, because we think it's important, you know, not just, not just for uh, U.S. jobs, but also energy security, to have the availability of, uh, of reliable fossil fuel sources. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Do you, um, do you guys mind talking a little bit about your time in Treasury? Can we talk about that? Of course. All right. Our favorite, so, our favorite subject. Well, no one ever you know, asks I, about I, that. Well, no, I, I want to. Uh, I mean, I, I really like your product and I, I, I hope that, you know, I want to go back to it. But it's just it, fascinating to me to think about what your life must have been like in February and March of 2020. I mean, when. I, I guess like. D- what was what was negotiating the airline package like? I mean, what what the heck happened in your life when the world sort of stopped? And was it frantic? Was it calm? Like, what was that experience like for you guys? If you don't mind, just riffing on it. So I, maybe I can tackle that, and I'm sure you know Steve. Steve's got a different perspective, and 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 he'll be able to add a ton. You know, I think in some respects, our experience, my experience certainly wasn't that different than everyone else's. The speed with which all this came on was, you know, just the most astonishing thing about it. You know, I, because I was in international affairs at at Treasury, you know, one of my jobs was flying around the world, meeting with finance ministers, central bank governors and whatnot. And I was literally on a, on a trip to Europe uh, and, and the Middle East at the end of February. And when we arrived in, in Italy, which was the first stop on, I think it was February 21st or February 22nd, our Italian interlocutors were a little freaked out because they were, had just said that, uh, you know, outside of Milan, the first COVID cases had been reported. And we were kind of like, huh, that's, you know, an interesting data point. And then we flew on to, to Amsterdam for a meeting of the uh, Financial Stability Board, central bank governors, finance ministers, uh, all around the world, and COVID was, you know, a big topic of discussion. What the economic impacts were going to be, but it was by no means the only. Then we flew to Israel, which was already in lockdown, and then we flew back mm-hmm. to Europe to Brussels to attend a fintech conference. Uh, and everyone there was still shaking hands. Occasionally, someone would try to do an elbow bump. So it was very much, you know, business and normal as you know, as uh, as as recently as early March. And then when we landed, that's when the markets really started to go haywire. And anyone who was active in the markets at that, at that time will just remember an incredibly dramatic period. And that's really what, what our lives were for you know, the next few months. 
And so we quickly morphed from, uh, you know, in my case, more from some of the international work that I had been doing uh, to being redeployed, trying to work, you know, all hands on deck to uh, save the U.S. economy. And the speed with which we pivoted and the speed with which we delivered really an unprecedented fiscal support package is, is just stunning. I mean, the CARES Act, which was $2.4 trillion, came together in basically 10 days. Uh, and you know it's a real credit to to Secretary Mnuchin, who was really extraordinarily extraordinary in this period, that he camped out in 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 uh, on Capitol Hill and uh, basically didn't leave until until the bill got done. But then once the bill got done on on March 26, we had to pivot towards implementation, right? And so in the airline context, which which I worked on, you know, Congress provided this big pot of money for us. But there were relatively few guidelines on how we could go spend it, and so there was enormous amount of discretion uh, and thought and negotiation with the airlines, with um, with industry associations, you know, with taking into account input from Congress and elsewhere to be able to roll out uh, a rescue package that we ultimately announced on, I believe, it was April eighth. Uh, so just about just even less than two weeks time, uh, we uh, we came up with the entire structure for uh, what was a $94 billion uh, rescue package for the aviation industry and for the national security industry, which is which is just unprecedented in the speed that it that it rolled out on. And and I and I do want to I do want to emphasize that again. I'm sure Steve will cover it in his in his discussion of his experiences. You know, the the most the singular imperative in responding to COVID was moving quickly, right? Because you went from an economy that was humming economy that was put on life support overnight, essentially. And every day that businesses were closed, that uh, you know we had lockdown stay-at-home orders, was, was a day where productive capacity in the economy was being destroyed. And so the, the speed of getting money into people's pockets uh, was really the, the most urgent, the most important factor in crafting the response. And the government is not, you know, ex ante set up to move that quickly. And so a lot of what we had to do was to get creative, to figure out just how we can move as quickly as possible to avoid productive capacity in the economy being damaged. Yeah, what what Dan said is absolutely right about the importance of speed. And, you know, the goal was Prevent a great, prevent a depression. Prevent a second version of the Great Depression where everyone defaults and every business has to shut down and fire all of its employees and all of those relationships which create a business, right? It's supplier relationships, it's customer relationships, it's lender relationships, it's borrower relationships. Prevent all those relationships from falling apart because if those relationships are all broken, you can't. It's it's a bit like Humpty Dumpty. You can't just put it back together again, right? Whereas if you can just sort of you know put things in the freezer for a few weeks, you know two weeks to flatten the curve was the thinking, right? If you can think just put things in the freezer for two weeks or, or two and a half months, as it turned out, you know, to, to be in, in the CARES Act with the Paycheck Protection Program, right? You could just take it out and, and defrost it and, and turn the switch back on and get the economy going again, right? So the goal was to get as much money out of the government into the economy as quickly as possible to prevent as many defaults and closures as in permanent closures as possible, which meant get the money, you know, out as you know through through whatever creative means you can right now you know the typical way the government gets out money is through you know sort of what what you would call stimulus checks right which at the end of the day are are ta- are structured as tax refunds right that means they go through the IRS through the Internal Revenue Service right 
the IRS was busy with the stimulus checks with the economic impact payments, right? So it was not able to take up the work of getting money to small businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So we had to structure the Paycheck Protection Program as going through the existing ah, banking system. Interesting. Right? And so the you've only got so many sets of pipes. Mm -hmm. And you need to you need to use them all, right? The IRS pipes were full of full of stimulus checks of the economic impact payments. Banking system, relationships are already set up with small businesses. You could get the money through there and get it up and running quickly. And so that's what we did. And you know, there's a lot of there was a lot of criticism of the Paycheck Protection Program after the fact. You know, there were, you know, sort of there were cases of fraud, right? There were loans that shouldn't have been made. But the imperative was to get the money at the door as quickly as possible. And had you stopped and designed a, designed a more fraud-proof program, right? And designed, you know, and 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 you know, potentially gotten the money out in in whatever way you want to get it out, whether it's to reduce fraud or whether it's to uh, you know favor certain groups in the country over other groups in the country, right? Every variation on the rules would have cost time. Yeah, there was no time. Yeah, there was no time. Right. And the goal, you know, we, we took a lot of we took a lot of criticism over that. And, and, and I feel that a lot of it was unfair because the goal was prevent closures, prevent permanent closures, permanent defaults, permanent layoffs, prevent a depression. And uh, designing the perfect program would have added weeks or months to the process, which, of course, you didn't have the luxury of. You didn't have the luxury of, of, of that at all. So speed was was absolutely 100 percent of the essence. Well, I mean, what do you say to people that that say like, oh, well, what about moral hazard? And didn't you just bail all these airlines out like American was over levered? Why not just let them fail? I mean, what's the response to that? I would say I mean, I, I would say the economic argument about moral hazard hinges on whether or not you think the change in affairs is permanent or transitory. Right. And at the time, you know, the economics apparatus of the U.S. government, by which I mean the Treasury Department took guidance from the public health community. And the public health community was telling everybody a few weeks to flatten the curve. If we all just stay home, this will be gone pretty quickly, right? And so if you view the shock ex ante as, you know, sort of only lasting a few weeks or at most a few, you know, at most a few months, moral hazard isn't really a strong argument because you think the world will return to normal after just a few months. That was the public health establishment view in April of 2020. March of 2020. The other the other thing I'd say is that, you know, moral hazard is 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 uh, is a concern when a, a particular event is uh, is foreseeable. Right. Versus in the in the covid context, what we're talking about here is a once in a century natural natural disaster. It's not it wasn't anything that businesses, especially not the airline industry, could have ever been conceivably built to withstand. Right. And so the appropriate government response from from my perspective and you know, certainly what we tried to implement was to preserve productive capacity in the economy. Right. Because if you allowed all the airlines to fail, if you allowed all the workers to be laid off, you know, and and uh, and not stay current on their certifications, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again, as Steve said, it would have incurred much, much, much greater costs on the economy than just trying to freeze these companies in place. Keep that productive capacity online. Keep workers attached to their healthcare. Keep the deployment relationships, so that when you emerged on the other side, you were able to have a much more efficient recovery. I still think that that fundamental design was sound. I think there are legitimate questions, you know, across the range of government programs uh, as to how long that support was kept up. You know, including in, in the airline context, which, 
let, let's not forget the airlines received another 15 billion dollars at the beginning of last year right in in march 20 uh 2021 as part of the so-called american rescue plan that's contributed so much to the inflation that we've seen in the economy over the last year but ex ante in march of 2020 which was when you had the heat of the panic uh, I think there was a very strong rationale to say, you know, the moral hazard argument is important, but it doesn't control in this situation. Yeah, there's a, a very strong contrast with 2008, right? In, t- in 2008, you know, banks had made bad loans of their own volition, right? They'd made too many loans to customers that had no no income, no jobs, no assets, right? And then taking enormous amounts of leverage on top of these loans. The more, you know, the preventing moral hazard argument was quite strong in 2008. And we only we only dipped our toes into it once with with, uh, you know, with with Lehman and even I guess Bear too. And, and even those were arguable because we ultimately lost stomach and decided we didn't care about moral hazard anyway with with TARP and 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 major bailouts facilitated facilitated by the Obama administration. Right. So, you know, we didn't have, you know, the moral hazard argument was much more problematic in, in 08 and we didn't have the stomach to go through with it then. Uh, the moral hazard argument, I think was not really at all you know, applicable at the time that the CARES Act was being passed. Well, I followed airlines going into that. So it's, a, it's something that I know a little bit about. And my, my point when I would discuss it with people is I said, like, you know, there, there are a lot of union jobs. I think a lot of the airlines carry less leverage than headlines may like you, may lead people to think. Like Delta is objectively capitalized in an appropriate way for an airline. Alaska was objectively appropriately capitalized. Like you start to get in a scenario where you lose all those union jobs to your point on the certifications, the FAA is not easy to deal with. And then like what happens if Spirit Aerosystems starts to go down and what happens if Hexel starts like the supply chain to me, I, I was always thinking if this thing breaks, I don't know how you put Humpty, Humpty Dumpty back together again. And it's it's just an unfortunate situation. It's a it, you know situation where you try to limit the pain, right? But the pain's going to be there no matter what. Yeah, I mean it's it's exactly right, and uh, and the supply chain point is is one that I think is underappreciated. You know what a lot of people may not realize is that a condition of receiving money under the payroll support program, which is the way that we got money out to the airline industry, was that airlines had to comply with a minimum level of service, which was determined by the Department of Transportation to ensure that supplies, that people were continuing to be able to flow uh, across all of our communities, right? With a particular focus on rural communities where air travel may be the, you know, the, the primary way with which goods and services reach, reach those communities. And so that was absolutely uh, a factor in our thinking, right? It was, it, there was a need to preserve the strategic industry. Yeah, but you're you're right about dealing with the FAA. I mean, you know, think about the approvals, the government approvals and regulatory apparatus that you have to navigate to set up an airline, right, to 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 permission an airline to actually do business. Now, imagine that you lost half or two thirds of the of the airline industry in the country or, or three quarters of the airline industry in the country. Setting that back up again from a regulatory perspective, years. Yeah, I think some people like to say, well, the debt holders would have just taken over and what does it really matter? I think that that's a lot easier to say in a textbook than reality. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Although I will I will give, you know, people who advance that argument credit. I mean, 
the airline industry has demonstrated that people are willing to, you know, continue to to fly on airlines that are going through a bankruptcy uh, process. And most of the U.S. carriers have gone through bankruptcy at some point, either they or, or their predecessor firms. You know, the difference here, uh, I, I'd say a couple. You know, number one, airlines are able historically to continue flying through bankruptcy and generating cash flow because they're or demand for seats on airplanes. Uh, in this context, there was no demand out there, right? What you saw is is that in a period of basically six weeks, the airlines went from record revenues, right, Re- record re- record passenger numbers, to record lows, right, and not just not just zero revenue, negative revenue in some cases as a result of all the rebates that were happening. And so there there are just no businesses that are designed. And run on on you know on capital structures that that can possibly withstand that kind of a shock to the system, and so bankruptcy you know an orderly restructuring and bankruptcy I think was basically off the table, you know on the in addition to that that process would take time right I mean even you know the the GM and, and Chrysler bankruptcies in in two thousand nine, which were some of the most rapid restructurings of major firms in in American history, still took months and months and months. And that process could not play out on you know any sort of realistic timeline in 2020 against a backdrop of the most severe economic crisis that the country's ever faced. There was just there was just too much going on for that process to happen in an orderly way, and there's no cash flow associated with the operations to support bankruptcy process. You know, the last thing I'd say is you know the government is is good at some things, but running airlines is not one of them. And so putting the government <laughs> in charge of operating airlines. You know, much like the government essentially operated GM and Chrysler during 2009, at the most severe point in or the the most severe crisis in an industry's history is a really bad idea. And who knows what kind of perverse outcomes it could have led to? You know, had the government actually stepped in and uh, overseen uh, some kind of restructuring of the industry during that period, I think it would have been a disaster for taxpayers, and it would have been a disaster for the U.S. economy. Steve, you had something to add? No, I was just going to say that, you know, the difficulty of engaging in a bankruptcy process during COVID would have been accelerated by the fact that bankruptcy courts were often closed. Yeah. Yeah. And the amount of people that would have filed in, a, in an alternative <laughs> scenario, it's like, I don't, yes. you're just going to flood the system with bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, yeah. Yes, you talk about clogging the pipes. I mean, that was that was a serious concern. And as it happened, we actually didn't see spikes in bankruptcy because of all the actions that the government undertook to prevent that from happening. Right. Small business bankruptcies went down because of the Paycheck Protection Program. Right. Large bankruptcies went down because of what the federal you know, large company bankruptcies went down because of what the Federal Reserve was doing in, in credit markets and in bond markets. OK, so now now we've gotten through March. What? <laughs> What what is why have some of these actions, uh, whether it's you know the Fed balance sheet or whether it's the bill that Dan referenced earlier, like why why is it taking so long to wean ourselves off of some of the stimulus and some of the support? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with what Dan mentioned before with the American Recovery Plan Act from just about a year ago, which you know, I think was, how do I say it? I mean, absolutely unnecessary. I mean, when this plan was was signed into, uh, signed in, uh, enacted into law by President Biden, vaccines were here, right? You think about fiscal stimulus being appropriate, you know, only when monetary policy has already done everything that it can, and then appropriate in a counter-cyclical manner, 
when the economy is going down and there's sort of a giant output gap and it, you know, it won't heal by itself and it needs the fiscal authority to step in and spend in order to get the economy back on its feet. The ARP was the opposite, right? Vaccines were here. Things were beginning to reopen a year ago this time. The economy was coming back to life. There wasn't even any concern about Delta or anything then, you know, or let alone Omicron, right? So this was fiscal stimulus at exactly the wrong time in the economic cycle. This, you know, countercyclical policy is supposed to lean against uh, lean against the wind, and this was leaning directly into the wind. That's why we have a lot of the inflationary problems that we have today. Obviously, it's not responsible for all of the inflationary problems, but you know, it was a significant contributor at a time when there were several other significant contributors. And, uh, you know, it's it's created an environment that, you know, sort of has had a, I would say, a toxic combination of uh, of inflation uh, from domestic and international sources. The the one thing I'd add is, is, you know, the unfortunately, there is a political overlay to all of this. Right. And if you look at what was done uh, in 2020, when, when Steve and I had the honor of serving, you know, every single covid response bill whether it was the CARES Act or whether it was the you know final piece of legislation that we were involved in, which was the the uh, you know the year end bill in in 2020, was done on a bipartisan basis, right? I mean, these are bills that that passed the Senate, you know, 99 to zero in some cases. The American Rescue Plan, however, was a pure party line vote, which I think indicates that it may not have been what was widely recognized as necessary fiscal policy at the time. But instead, was part of a broader political calculus with the you know changing of the guard in, in Washington, and you know it's unfortunate that uh, we ended up uh, in that position, right? Because you certainly want to see most economic policy done on a on a bipartisan basis, and I think you know the whole country has been paying uh, the cost of that uh, largely in the form of inflation over the last year. Sometimes when I see those partisan votes, I, I wish that. Uh... I wish that we could do uh, like a blind vote where everybody thought they were the swing vote. Right. <laughs> then I think you would actually get to like a true outcome. But, you know, that's that's idealism, I suppose. That'd be funny, funny to watch. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, even 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 the even the bipartisan infrastructure framework that was passed last year. Right. Even that's going to contribute to inflation because it's arriving at the wrong moment in time. You know, that's what should have been passed before ARP, for sure, not after ARP. But if you think about infrastructure spending, yeah, the country needs infrastructure spending dearly. There are places in the country where infrastructure is falling apart and traffic is horrendous and you need to create you know, transit options for people to move around the country or else you can't really keep the economy functioning. That's absolutely necessary. But nevertheless, in the long term, you know, maybe it can be disinflationary as it as it reduces wait time and increases the ease with which people and goods move around the country. But in the short term, at least for the first few years, it's going to throw more inflationary fuel on the fire at exactly the wrong moment. Think about road construction, right? And I wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal last year, right? When construction happens, after construction is done, everything flows much better. Traffic goes down, right? You can think of traffic as inflation, right? It's increasing the cost of going someplace. And so after construction, traffic goes down, everything functions more smoothly, it's disinflationary. But we know traffic can construction can take years to occur. I live in New York City. The East River Drive near, near where I live has been under construction for like four or five years, I think, at this point, and there's still no end in sight. Yeah. So and while the construction is happening, traffic is much worse. Yep. 
When they shut down one lane while they're building additional lanes, traffic backs up. Building of new infrastructure tends to disrupt the usage of old infrastructure during the building process. Mm -hmm. that, can throw, that can throw fuel on the inflationary fire. And so even though the bipartisan infrastructure framework is going to be disinflationary on a 10-year horizon, on a two- or three-year horizon, right? And don't forget, the spending is starting in, in size you know, later this year. On a two- or three-year horizon, it's just going to be even more inflationary. At exactly the time where we have commodity shortages. At exactly the time when you have commodity shortages and at exactly a time when the, you know, essentially what you're doing is you're forcing the Fed to hike even more to offset it. This notion of monetary offset of what the fiscal authority is doing, the Fed is targeting a particular inflation rate. And the more the fiscal authority drives that inflation rate up or down, the more it forces the Fed to try and counteract it. So the Fed will have to hike more than it otherwise would have because of this. Hmm. It's very confounding how the Fed can get any uh, control of the current inflationary environment without hiking enough to, to really put the brakes on the economy. Because to me, it seems like a supply side issue between supply chains and commodity shortages. Now, maybe maybe that's because the demand is too high. I'm, I'm not sure. But boy, what a problem it seems like we're facing. Absolutely. I mean, the Fed has really tragically painted itself into a corner where there's no good options. I mean, the policy error was really done a year ago. The tightening should have begun a year ago, not now. And they, they should not have been doing QE until March. I mean, the idea, you know, they didn't start tapering until QE until like November or something, right? And the idea that in September of 2021, you needed the same exact policy settings that you needed in April 2020, as though the economy hadn't changed, is just insane. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so why does, that, that, why does that's that just happen? bizarre? Like, they're, they're smart people over there. Like, why do they continue to do what they've been doing? I mean, I think it's a little bit of a French influence. They're fighting the last war. And, uh, you know, like the, the joke about the French are always fighting the last war. And, and you know, in the previous, you know, sort of last 10 years, 15 years, right? Recoveries from recessions had been slow. They'd been difficult, and they'd been and they'd been disinflationary. Hmm. Right? Those were very different types of recoveries. Those the previous two recessions, 08 and and, and two thousand, were caused by the collapse of asset bubbles. So those were really what economists call balance sheet recessions, where there was too much debt in the economy, which had misaligned balance sheets, and so people with bad balance sheets spent years saving too much money. Hmm. Sorry, saving lots of money to pay down their debts. But this, we actually came out and everybody's, well, not everybody, but the consumer balance sheet was recapped positively. Exactly. After 2000, it was corporate balance sheets. After 08, it was consumer balance hmm. sheets, household balance sheets, right? But in 2021, this wasn't caused by an asset bubble collapse, which left people with bad balance sheets. It was caused by a natural disaster. Hmm. And the natural disaster went away and we recapped everybody much more than anybody lost through hmm. fiscal. So the idea that this recovery was going to be as slow and, and horrible and disinflationary as the last one is just rooted in a naive, you know, a, a naive recency bias. And I think that's the problem that the Fed ran into, not really understanding that every recession is different and the policy you mix, policy mix you need for every recession should also be different. Hmm. And so the idea that in September of 2021, policy was on the exact same settings as it was in the summer of 2020 when the economy was so much different, the unemployment was so much different, the public health situation was so much different, is just frankly, I think, just nuts. Hmm. So 
whether it was a supply side issue, I mean, yes, the supply side has contributed, but I do think it's really important to draw a distinction between the commodity shock and the and the supply chain disruptions. I think because they're they're quite different, and the commodity shock is more of what economists would traditionally think of as a supply side disruption that you should look through, right? That a monetary authority should look through because it's transitory and and you know whatever, right? So the that's much more recent the oil price really going bonkers. Mm-hmm. The supply chain disruptions, what they do is rather than sort of shift the supply curve of the economy inward, they just serve to make it more vertical. So if you sort of picture a supply and demand chart in your head, a more vertical supply chain means any increases in demand just result in inflation. Yeah, so said differently, you're not... the The supply... Huh, what, how am I trying to say this? I think I know what you're saying. It seems like the quantity supplied right now is artificially low. The supply chain theoretically hasn't changed, but there's practical constraints to it. And then demand has actually shifted up. So, exactly. so you've got like a price explosion to get to equilibrium. Exactly. You're at max capacity. No matter what you do, you just can't produce more. Yeah. The widget factory is working at full full capacity. There is no ability to produce additional widgets. Any additional dollar of demand, therefore, cannot show up in more widgets produced. It can only show up in the price of widgets. So going back to JSG, do, do, yeah. do we need to have a more rope? Do we need duplicative supply chains? Like, do we need a more robust sort of workaround in case the supply chain gets you know, sort of cogged up? Well, we need more resilient supply chains for sure, 100%, 100%, right? That means supply chains that have less exposure to the potential to get all tangled up, like involvement in, you know, sort of parts of Eastern Europe that uh, Vladimir Putin might want to flence off and add to Russia at any moment in time. It means more safety in exposure to China because China could wake up tomorrow and decide there's some internal argument in the Communist Party and your key supplier of parts has, you know, fallen victim to some internal Chinese political squabble or trade war tensions could escalate. And it means more exposure either to the U.S. or to stable countries, stable and friendly countries that are near the U.S. Yeah. And on top of that, it means less of a just in time management of inventories. The just-in-time inventory in- inventory chain worked marvelously in a world with no shocks and endlessly increasing capacity. But what we've learned is that it's just not robust. It's not resilient. And so supply chains need to be, you know, they need to have maybe some redundancies built in, but certainly steps need to be taken to make things uh, more secure. Dan, you have anything to add? No, I, I, I couldn't agree. I mean, the, the whole paradigm needs to shift from just in time to just in case. And we believe that, hmm. you know, over time, companies that, that adopt that model are actually going to optimize over a long enough time horizon for, uh, for the security of their supply chain and therefore the, you know, the, the financial performance of the business. Because just in time may, you know, may work as long as there's no geopolitical shock, but there will be. And so over a long enough time horizon, if, you, if you're an investor with long time, Horizon, like we are, you, you know, you really need to incorporate that kind of uh, thinking into your business model. 
we're really in the early the early innings of the reshoring movement, right? There's just so many reasons for companies to be doing that, and the companies that are specializing in it and getting getting a head start, we think are going to deliver you know significant outperformance in coming years. Yeah, I think we're like in the top of the first inning, right? I mean, absolutely. I think uh, it, it's just been a crazy couple of years to live through and to have. You know, I, I again, like I'm I don't pay much uh, attention mostly because I'm not very intelligent when it comes to geopolitics, but like to see how the West aligned around the Russia when Russia attacked Ukraine, to see how the West got united on the back of COVID with all these supply chain issues. I just I can't stop thinking about like how much risk is in the supply chain system right now and how that needs to be taken out of this that ri- we need to reduce that risk every day we can i think and that that risk, but maybe i'm wrong no i we agree with you and and that risk you know in the russia ukraine context is much more limited than the risk is in east asia you know if you take the semiconductor industry for example i mean this is maybe the area you see it most acutely i mean our entire economy is essentially dependent on tsmc's ability to continue to operate and supply iphones uh you know and various other semiconductors across uh, across our economy. You know, there's also a, a, a real concentration risk to uh, Samsung in, in South Korea. And, uh, you know, the, the neighborhood is not that friendly, particularly as you see, uh, you know, revisionist China looking to impose its own view of what the world order is, is, is likely to look like. And so, you know, just to frame up kind of where we are in this reshoring process, you know, as you said, Bill, we're, we're really only in the top of the first inning because you know, the the announcement that, you know, one of our portfolio companies, Intel, made a couple of weeks ago about investing in this new campus of uh, fabrication uh, and design facilities for semiconductors in Ohio is wonderful, but it's going to take years, right? The TSMC factory and, and the Samsung facilities that are being built in the in the southeast right now, or excuse me, southwest in, in Texas and in, and in Arizona are wonderful, but it's going to be many years before, before those foundries are active, right? And so, we're only at the very beginning of the process. And in the interim, you know, it's critical that we, you know, continue that diversification, but also defend the current supplies that we have in the market. Because, uh, you know, what we've seen in the auto industry, for example, the, the industries can be very, very, very sensitive to shocks in, in semiconductor supplies. I mean, really, the, the, you know, the losing of the or the narrowing of the American technological edge over China and, and, and other adversarial countries and, and the hollowing out of the American industrial base. That happened over decades. Yeah, it really was a slow process from, you know, 19, you know, from the fall of the uh, of the Iron Curtain on right to China entering into into the WTO all the way until COVID when suddenly we couldn't attach, you know, plastic loops to pieces of cloth to make masks and we had to import them from China. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like that's that's crazy, right? And rebuilding that technological base, rebuilding rebuilding that industrial plant isn't going to happen in six months. This is it was multi decades to get to where we are now, and it's going to be multi decades to get you know sort of get to get back on top. So you know we think that the companies that we choose uh, are that we're choosing are are going to benefit from really multi decade secular trends in 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 these areas. Yeah, and and you know it's it, it, when we think about kind of the role in in you know the health of the overall U.S. economy and. And you know the growth factor in JSG. You know one way one way to think about this is in the context of spillover effects because innovation happens where production happens, 
right? And so yeah. it's so critical for the U.S. to have this manufacturing base so that we can continue to be on the technological edge over a you know multi-decade period. A hundred percent. I was. It's funny. I I was watching. Uh, it might have been on Discovery Channel. I don't know, but they were talking about how expertise is in geogra- in geographies and and the case study that they were looking into was glass blowing in Venice Italy right and the way that expertise from the people that are using their hands gets transferred up to the you know whatever it is you know i think well, if we're not close to making anything, how are we like, I get that. Okay. We have the brain and we're sending the prints or the blueprints over, but like, how do you, how there's almost a disconnect that I think creates this risk of getting bypassed. I don't know. Totally. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I mean, in order to figure out how to make things better, you have to be making them to begin with. You need to have your hands in the dirt and to have real experience about how things work in the field. You know, it's 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 the difference between the map and the territory. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to sort of sit around planning, a, you know, a battle or or a, or a, a travel line or something like that using a map. But guess what? <laughs> you know, there's bumps in the road and, you know, that you didn't expect there to be because they weren't on the map, but they are there in the real world that you live in. So, you know, in order to really have a technological advantage and maintain technological supremacy of the United States and industrial strength of the United States. You need to be innovating and you just cannot innovate if you're not making anything. Otherwise, you wind up with, uh, you know, a company like Facebook uh, employing the best minds in the country. And given a choice between a country in which the best minds were creating social networking tools or a country in which the best <laughs> minds were curing cancer or, uh, you know, building building robots that take care of, uh, you know, that take care of your grandparents or whatever it is. Right. I would rather choose the country that that has the best minds making stuff yeah. instead of, you know, in, instead of building, uh, you know, what at the end of the day are, are uh, you know, sort of great social tools. But in my opinion, have limited physical impact in, in uh, on human welfare, at least positive, positive physical impact on human welfare. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have, uh, I, you know, I've used Twitter to educate myself on a lot of things, so. I think that there's uh, there's merit in what they do. But at the end of the day, it's a media company. And to think that the brightest and best and brightest or whatever are going to work in media is kind of a terrifying thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I, they're, you know, so, you know, the media companies and the social companies, right? Like the products are valuable. They have functions in society. You know, at the end of the day, I'd rather have a society with these products than without these products. But I'd still rather have the best minds curing cancer. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, what Palmer Lucky is doing, right? Isn't that the guy that uh, that started uh, Oculus? Am I? Yep. Yeah. What he's doing in defense is pretty cool. Uh, there was just yeah, an article totally. on him and Wired. You know, I I don't have a problem with the with the bright minds doing stuff like that. That makes me feel more yeah. secure. Yeah. So, well, I I tell you, I mean, do you guys want to talk about anything else? I've loved this episode. I might have to uh, play like uh, My Country Tis of Thee is the uh, intro music or something <laughs> from it. Well, you know, we're just we're just trying to we're just trying to make it a better country for everyone who lives here. You know, we think 
it, it's it's great that corporate social responsibility has expanded in recent years to encompass ideas like the environment, right? But we think at the end of the day, corporate social responsibility, your number one responsibility is to make the country you live in a better place for everyone who lives here. And that includes jobs, includes security, it includes growth. And so we encourage people to visit our website, you know, amberwavepartners.com or the fund website, jsgfunds.com. Uh, learn more, you know, feel free to get in touch with us. If you have a financial advisor, tell your financial advisor uh, about JSG investing because, you know, we're in it to improve to improve life for everybody. And in order to do that, you know, uh, we need to make JSG investing work. Dan, I'll let you wrap up. But one thing that I wanted to circle back to is uh, something that you said about, you know, investing in rural communities, because, I don't know how many people get in the car and drive anymore, but I drove from Chicago to Denver and I drove from Chicago to Florida and, you know, it's just, it's sad. You know, you see these towns that like things used to go through or they used to make things and it's just, it's devastated, you know, and there's, I I was talking to my wife, I said, you know, what's the probability that this town has an outlook that's better in five years than even this one? And, uh, you know, I am hopeful that that onshoring and if funds like yours incentivizing the right behavior may give those people a shot again because they deserve it. I mean, we're, we're we're certainly hopeful as well that the that the trend can turn around. I mean, you know, just to kind of back up and, and identify the driver. I mean, there's a reasonable economic argument if all you're looking at is utility or productivity or other measures of output that uh you know trade displacements right you're buying things cheaper from from uh, china or some other market you know labor that previously produced that will be reallocated elsewhere in the economy and on net everyone's going to be better off as a result of the greater productivity uh and the cheaper uh and the cheaper cost of goods but that has a very very narrow that economic view is a very very narrow one and what it doesn't take account of is that people don't work for the economy the economy works for people uh, and so what you saw as a result of some of that thinking was is that certain segments of society, you know, the burden fell on them disproportionately as, uh, you know, what the industries that pre- that previously produced livelihoods for many American communities moved elsewhere. Uh, and guess what? There wasn't enough help for for those communities. And what we've seen is. In, in economic theory, that wasn't even a positive, right? Because of the supply chain vulnerabilities it created, because of the the harms to to U.S. Uh, energy independence and, and you know and other forms of economic independence. So really, what what we need to see is a, is a broad rethink of of the philosophy that led to that process, uh, and the capital markets have a role to play, right? ESG yeah. has had a dramatic impact on the availability of financing for the energy industry, for example. And JSG is is just starting, right? I mean, IUSA, our, our ETF, uh, is is just starting out. We only launched in January, but over time, we want to grow this into an ecosystem that can help bring some balance back into the capital markets to make sure that we're remembering, you know, broad based impacts on American communities from corporate action. Well, I uh, I'm rooting for you guys. I thank you for stopping by the show and. Uh, you know, if you ever have some big, uh, big thoughts on the Fed or Treasury or anything that you want to, sh- to share, uh, open invite to come back on. So uh, thank you guys. And uh, I look forward to watching your progress, man, I, or both of you. Uh, I really am hoping for good things for you because I think it'd be good for our country. Great. Well, thanks for having us on. It's been it's been su- you know such fun to talk with you. Take care, Bill. Thanks again.